Children, um, I want you to think of a friend, perhaps it's your brother or your sister, or perhaps it's uh, uh, somebody down the road, or maybe it's a cousin. But I want you to think of a friend of yours. Uh, just choose a friend um, who is roughly your age, okay, whom you play with, um, at least periodically. And I want you to imagine if your friend that you have in mind right now, if all of a sudden, while you're with your friend uh, or your brother or sister or whatever, uh, cousin, if all of a sudden that child started acting like a little teeny baby, like the one Fran is holding, maybe not quite that young, but close, um, started acting like a little baby, crawling around, wetting her pants or his pants, uh, not speaking words, but just kind of... How was that? Was that good? Anyway, what if that happened? Wouldn't that kind of be a horrifying thing? If Joel did that, for example, Adam? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not becoming for somebody who is a certain level of maturity to go back to being really, really, really immature, is it? You don't want to go backwards when it comes to maturity, do you? No. Well, this passage is addressed by the writer of Hebrews uh, to a people who are in danger of moving backwards spiritually, of becoming going from being spiritually, relatively, as a group, mature, to becoming immature once again. That means baby-like, by the way, spiritually. And they're in danger of that. And the uh, writer of this sermon is giving them a dressing down in a couple of different places in this sermon, one of which uh, is right here. And so the lesson, you know, the sermon right up front, is that is not what you want to do. As a Christian, that is sinful, by the way. It also is uh, painful for the person who backslides. We're going to call it backsliding. And um, it grieves uh, God's heart or brings dishonor. That's perhaps a better way to put it. Brings dishonor to God uh, by Christians who name the name of Christ and who even are Christians to become apathetic and thereby um, head backwards spiritually, I'll put it that way. On several occasions, as I've made this point already as we've been working our way through Hebrews, uh, on several occasions I've made the point that unlike the other books of the New Testament, indeed unlike the other books of the Bible, really, uh, I can't think of any other book that's like Hebrews in this respect, but the book of Hebrews is actually a carefully crafted sermon. It doesn't have the marks of... Uh, an epistle, a letter. It doesn't have the marks of a gospel. Um, it doesn't have uh, the marks of uh, uh, apocalyptic prophecy like Revelation does, for example. It has the marks of a sermon. It's constructed like a sermon. And it is a sermon. And it's composed by the writer, who we don't know who the human writer is. We know who the divine writer is, of course. It's uh, the Holy Spirit. But it's composed by the writer's uh, to encourage or exhort 
the tired and weary members of a house church of Jewish Christians. It's to encourage them and exhort them to respond with courage and with faith to the prospect of renewed persecution and suffering arising on account of their commitment to Christ. And it's composed to warn them, as well as encourage them, to warn them of the grave dangers of failing to maintain their commitment to Christ, their confession of faith in Him as their only hope of salvation. To revert to their Jewish ways, and by Jewish I don't mean Old Testament Judaism, I'm talking more of the corrupted rabbinic Judaism that they came out of, of the first century. That had unbiblical uh, it was not Old Testament Judaism, but a, per, a perverted uh, a twist on Old Testament Judaism. And he's writing them, don't do this. And encouraging them, look, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get hard. I'll get to that in a minute. So anyway, the point is, it's composed for these reasons. So, so there are passages contained within the sermon, warning passages, exhortation or hortatory. Ex, uh, exhortation means hortatory. Those are two words that are essentially synonymous. Uh, uh, passages in them interspersed throughout the sermon. There are really three big sections of it. So the first uh, hortatory section or uh, exhortational section occurs in chapter 2. It's verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. And there the writer warns his readers of the dangers of drifting away from the gospel message itself. The second such passage is found in chapter 3, runs through the end of chapter 4, and it is an exposition and application of Psalm 95, you'll recall, which was written by David, warning of the dangers of backsliding like the wilderness, Israelites in the wilderness um, engaged in. The people, David was warning the people of his day, and the writer of the Hebrews renews that warning by, uh, by unpacking uh, and commenting on Psalm 95. And then the third exhortational section in Hebrews begins where our sermon begins today, which is chapter 5, verse 11. And it continues through chapter 6, verse 12. Now, we're not going all the way to chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, we're going to be examining today the first half of this section, uh, 11, uh, 5, 11 through 6, 12. We're going to look at the first half of it today. And, Lord willing, uh, the next half of it uh, either in the next couple of weeks. Now, most people who read Hebrews, including, by the way, many commentators, uh, read this passage that we're looking at today, 11.5 and following. They read it, um, and they assume something. What they assume is that the writer is actually accusing his readers of having remained, and that's the key word here, having remained immature, immature in the faith, in spite of having had plenty of time and opportunity to become spiritually mature. That's the way many people read this section, and indeed Hebrews at, at large, um, and that uh, because of their continued spiritual immaturity, they are still in need of basic instruction in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Many people read this passage and come to that conclusion about Hebrews, and I think they're wrong. But I'm not the only one. Uh, so you'll see here, I'm not relying on my own, just pull this out of a hat kind of thing. No, um, the pro, and I'm quoting now from one of the commentators uh, who wrote an excellent commentary on 
on the, uh, Hebrews, uh, not a perfect commentary, but a good one, uh, William Lane. And he, he says the problem with this con- reconstruction that they have remained immature and uh, rather than being spiritually mature but in danger of backsliding, the problem with this reconstruction, says Lane, the reconstruction of this situation, is that it is not supported by the details of the text. And I agree with him. Now, what am I talking about? Well, Lane points out in his commentary that virtually everything the writer of the Hebrews has said up to this point presupposes a level of spiritual, um, or presupposes a level rather of instruction and understanding uh, of the fundamentals uh, of the faith uh, on the part of his readers that corresponds to, remember he used the word, he talked about uh, solid food versus milk. He, he, let me restart my sentence here. He says that virtually everything the writer says in this sermon presupposes a level of instruction and uh, understanding that corresponds with the consumption of solid food by spiritual adults rather than milk by spiritual babes. He says the sermon reads like it's preached to people who know a lot already, at least head knowledge-wise. Lane says that. And he gives us an example of the fact that the writer of the Hebrews makes absolutely no attempt uh, prior to this point, or after this point, for that matter, to review the basic tenets of the Christian faith for his readers. To lay out, here's basic Christianity, you know, let's, let me tell you, you know, God loves you, you know, what, that, I was sorry, that's not the way I'd start out. But at any rate, um, I was, I was rehearsing my Campus Crusade, um, language there for a second. I would do it differently than Dr. Bright did in the Four Spiritual Laws. At any rate, there's no evidence in this book to speak of that he's addressing spiritual babes. In addition, by the way, he indicates in verse 12 of chapter 5 that we're looking at as our, in our text today, he indicates that the quality and duration of his reader's spiritual instruction that they've received up to this point has actually qualified them, at least theoretically, to be instructors of others, teachers of others. He says there in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. These observations support the same conclusion. And that is that the writer of the Hebrews, writing to his audience, he clearly considered his audience, his readers, to whom he's writing to be, in some sense, spiritually mature Christians, at least as far as their level of head knowledge is concerned. He's talking about Melchizedek. And, 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 uh, you know, the relationship between the Levitical priests and the, and the, uh, uh, Jesus and so on and so forth. And this is heavy stuff. The writer of the, he- uh, the book of Hebrews is heavy stuff, theologically speaking. So, so here's the question. What are we to make of the writer's words in verses 11 and 12? I just read, I just read 12. Let's go back to 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, meaning about Christ as the uh, priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, uh, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
you have need again. And that, I'm not going to reread all that. But you get my point. So what, what's he getting at here? When he portrays them as, in effect, spiritual infants in need of milk rather than solid food. And indicates that they, uh, again, need someone to teach them the basics of the faith, the elementary principles. What I'm convinced of, through Lane, some others, but uh, I'm convinced what he's doing here that makes sense of the whole is he's speaking ironically to his readers. He's using irony, um, thick irony, to make them see how problematic their current situation is. Basically to make them ashamed or give them a sense of guilt, I would say, of the fact that they have regressed spiritually as a church. They have backslidden. They have, they have, they're moving back towards immaturity again. And also to use that same irony, especially found in verses, oh, I, I, I failed to read verse 13 too, uh, that talks about the, uh, uh, the milk, uh, and calls them babes. Um, he also uses irony to, to try to motivate them to once again embrace Christ and his word with the same zeal and love and determination that once characterized their faith, but was increasingly not characterizing their faith as a church. They were wandering, collectively. They were becoming, as you'll see in a moment, apathetic. With all of this in mind as a backdrop, and with that uh, analysis of where his audience was at and how he thought of his audience. Two points in remaining of our time that we're going to look at. First of all, in spite of the significant pressure to do so, you and I must not allow ourselves to revert back to a state of spiritual immaturity. That's the first point. And the second point is that in spite of the significant pressure of significant pressure not to do so, you and I must trust God to bring us to an even greater level of spiritual maturity. A little bit of a play on words there, and kind of, but uh, that's the best I could do with the points. So those are the two points, and they're two sides of the same coin in some sense, but from different angles. So again, in spite of this uh, significant pressure to do so, they must not allow themselves to. We must not allow ourselves to revert back to a state of a state of spiritual immaturity. We'll start with that, and then I'll read the second point when we get to it. But we must not revert. We must not revert. The writer's audience, they were experiencing pressure. They had been experiencing pressures upon them as a, as a church. They had suffered already persecution in the past, fairly recent past, it appears, on account of their allegiance to Christ probably from their unconverted Jewish brethren uh, and, uh, and Gentiles as well, perhaps. Because uh, 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 these folks are not in, in Palestine. They're, they're um, in somewhere, somewhere in the Roman Empire because they, they, they speak Greek, as evidenced by the fact that he wrote in Greek to them. Um, but they, they, had, they had been suffering in the past as a congregation. And, not only that, but they are now apparently faced with the prospect of renewed suffering for their commitment to Christ in the near future. A thought that from which they would naturally recoil. Not again. Right? And that's 
the prospect of suffering, and you know, we don't know what suffering is like. Folks of old, Christians of old, they suffered, and it was suffering. Uh, especially back in the first, second, and uh, third centuries. But there, his audience's undis- uh, um, understandable desire to avoid further persecution for their faith, sadly, it apparently had led them into the sin for which the writer is now rebuking them in this passage. And that is, he accuses them of being having become dull of hearing in response to these pressures upon them. It made them spiritually dull. Verse 11. This means, this dull of hearing, what it means is to be slow to understand or grasp with the implication, in addition to being slow to grasp, um, with the implication that the person who is slow to understand or is heart dull of hearing uh, is this way on account of spiritual apathy or laziness. And he implies, the writer does, that they, as a whole, as a church, had become largely apathetic to the Word of God, both... Uh, uh, both the word of God written and the word of God that was being preached to them. They had become unresponsive to that word, unlike in times past when they were eager to hear the word read and preached and respond in a God-honoring fashion to it. They had apparently, yeah, lost much of their desire that they had previously had to grasp, if you will, to dig into the scriptures and think about it and and uh, 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 respond with faith, further faith, and greater obedience to it. Apathy was setting in. Numbness, perhaps, might be another word to describe it. Spiritual numbness. Have you ever been spiritually numb? Or... Apathetic. I dare say most of us who have been Christians for a while have been through seasons of that. This is a rebuke of that and a call to not let it happen again. Let's move on. The writer implies um, that connected to this dullness of hearing, this apathy, that increasing apathy of, the, of them as a congregation, he implies that they had... Uh, as a result, kind of withdrawn themselves from, largely from contact with people who were outside of the church community. And this was, verse 12 makes that point. Um, there, there's a, there's a, it's kind of a, a subtle point, but he's, um, he's, I think it's verse 12. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because of, because of, uh, it's evidenced by the fact that though uh, they are at a point where they in the Christian life where they ought to be instructing others, they're they're not doing so. They should be go out. They should be going out and what making disciples, interacting with their non Christian neighbors at the at the butcher's market and you know uh, at the I was going to say blacksmith. I don't think they had blacksmiths back then, but you know what I mean. 
places like that that they would go, and they're to and they're to be talking about their faith, talking about their Savior, and uh, and seeking to try to convince people, trusting God for the grace to change their heart. But but we got to do the work of talking to them. God uses means. We're the means. But what was happening was there again. It's it's kind of um, implied. It's not directly stated, but this idea of 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 becoming withdrawn. And again, this is where I mentioned to those of you in Sunday school. They were adopting a kind of a cloister mentality. I think it's uh, it's fairly safe to say that hunkering down uh, behind the figurative walls of the covenant community and kind of just keeping to themselves, not teaching, reaching out to by way of teaching others. Because man, he's talking to a whole congregation here, not just to the leaders. So we're all supposed to be teaching, instructing, being salt and light. And both of these problems, both the 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 uh, the apathy, the dullness of hearing, and the uh, increasing evidence of being withdrawn as a community, both problems were the result of of a spiritual um, declension, to use an old timey word, declining, backsliding. And the writer's great concern is that this spiritual laxity and erosion, uh, or excuse me, the spiritual laxity was eroding their faith in and their love for Christ. This is why he repeatedly urges them in his sermon not to continue disregarding the voice of God speaking to them through the scriptures read and preached. And he warns them, if you do that, if you continue to, what you're kind of doing right now is I'm writing to you, disregarding in some sense, or being selective about listening to God speaking to you, um, you're imperiling your spiritual life and your spiritual development and your soul. In fact, over in chapter 6, verse 4, that passage that we're not going to talk about today, but uh, that immediately follows the passage that uh, I'm preaching on, he talks about the the dangers of declining uh, into unbelief and proving to never have truly been a Christian. You keep on this path of declension and apathy and and and, and reverting to um, immaturity, if you if I could put it that way again. Um, that can lead to apostasy. All of us, folks, today, we're under pressure from the world. It's different pressure than the saints that uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to. But all of us experience pressure and have throughout the human civilization, as long as the church has uh, been the church, uh, living in a sin-cursed world, we've always experienced pressure. We experience pressure today to from the world to back away from our commitment to Christ. Or, um, yeah, in some subtle or not-so-subtle ways, to back away from that commitment. Or perhaps you, someone who has responded to Pressure, um, various types of pressure, but pressure, uh, 
by becoming increasingly unresponsive yourself to God, speaking to you through the word read and preached. Does that, is there some truth to that describing you? How often, if ever, but does your desire to please your spouse, your children, your parents, or your boss, how often, if ever, does that desire, those desires, trump your desire to obey the Lord? How often do your ambitions, your, your goals in life, trump your desire to obey God, especially when they're in conflict? When you read God's word, are you selective about what you're listening to, if I can put it that way? Or you hear a sermon, are you selective about what you're going to apply? I'm not gonna, I'm gonna apply this. I think I'm gonna pass on that. Do you ever pull that stunt? I have. When we do these things, folks, we are becoming dull of hearing. We are increasingly becoming apathetic to God because we're kind of pushing him away, even if it's through spiritual indifference. And we are declining spiritually. Horatius Bonar wrote uh, a wonderful little book called uh, Spiritual Declension. I commend it to you. Um, It's on this very subject. No, we are to, in spite of the pressures to do otherwise, uh, we are not to allow ourselves to revert back to a state of spiritual immaturity and uh, to regress. But secondly, this passage also makes a correspondingly related point that in spite of the significant pressures to not do so, you and I must trust, actively trust the Lord to bring us to an even greater level of spiritual maturity than we're at. The writer's audience was experiencing pressures. I've already mentioned some. These pressures were not only to to revert, to slide spiritually backwards, but also pressures to not trust God, to help them deal with this pressure in a God-honoring way. There was peer pressure. There's always peer pressure from neighbors, you know, friends, um, Again, they were facing, these folks were facing the prospect of renewed suffering. That was a pressure that was also tests your ability to trust God, doesn't it? It makes it hard when you're, and again, we don't know what they were going through exactly, but it was probably more than any of us have gone through in terms of pressure, uh, of persecution. Um, it's scary. And it's hard, harder to trust God at times like that. These folks were, they were 
you know, we got to be sympathetic to some degree, anyway, to their plight. Peer pressure, uh, prospect of further suffering. There's pressures from the old man within his selfish agenda. He's still there. Wants to be first. All these pressures to just, rather than trust God to move forward, even though there are headwinds, uh, it's a whole lot easier just to kind of coast spiritually. To rest on our laurels. Ah, but in reality, folks, there is no such thing as coasting spiritually. You're either progressing or you're declining. Where are you? You're not coasting. You're either progressing or you're declining. You and I face pressures ourselves, uh, additional pressures uh, to not trust God for greater spiritual maturity in our life, for growth in our life. Uh, additional pressures include uh, spiritual inertia. Again, that whole coasting thing. It's We tend toward laziness. All of us do. Uh, if we're not careful, we tend to be lazy. Not just physically lazy about you know, getting exercise and doing chores and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, and doing work, but we also have there's a spiritual inertia that's just easy to fall into, and and also the tendency to think that uh, you're too busy to make regular time in your schedule uh, for the ordinary means of grace. I'm just, I'm, not, I'm just too busy right now, and you know the hecticness of modern life. All of us always. Running around like chickens with our heads cut off, as my grandmother would say. And we we get busy, and we say, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to God later. I'll read my Bible later. I'll fellowship with Christians later. Folks, we need to be deliberate about our trust. We need to say, I am going to trust you, Lord, to do this or to help me to do this. We don't, we need to think about act, what does it mean to trust God to grow spiritually? What does it, how does that look? We need to think about those things and we need to deliberately trust the Lord for forward movement in our spiritual life. The Greek word, look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 6 here. I want to talk about that for a second before I close. So he says, remember, after, after his criticism of them, and uh, the, the ironic kind of, you have need again for the elementary principles, or so it seems, based on the way you're acting right now, and uh, you know, milk rather than solid food. And then he says in verse 6, therefore... Now, I'm going to read the New American Standard, but I'm going to retranslate a couple things here, at least uh, tweak a couple things. This says, therefore, leaving or leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Christ, 
let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance toward dead works, uh, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And he goes on. Um, a couple things there that probably are not done quite as well as they should by the New American uh, Translation Committee. Um, the Greek word that the New American Standard translates as let us press on. So that's the second phrase. Uh, Therefore, leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to the uh, to maturity. That word is probably better rendered. Let us be carried forward. Notice the word be in there. Uh, that's a, almost certainly a better translation than let us press on for this reason, because um, it there's a the vo- the writer is using the passive voice. I don't know how many of you remember the the passive versus the active voice and all that kind of stuff, but but uh, from grammar school, but uh, or studies, but uh, he's using the passive voice here, and so it's better really translated as "Let us be carried forward." And so, what the writer, if that's correct, and I'm confident he is, is trying to do here in his use of the passive voice using that verb when he's instructing his readers, is he's trying to convey to them the idea that they need to be carried forward spiritually by God. It's done to them rather than they doing it. It's done to them. Let us be carried forward, implied by God, to greater spiritual maturity as opposed to, or rather than, by their own striving, pulling myself up by my bootstraps. You've heard this from me before. What that doesn't mean, being carried forward by God, doesn't mean let go, let God. Just sit there and whack me, God. Carry me along. I'll just sit here and spiritually rest. That's not what that means. What it means, um, and by the way, the fact that it doesn't mean that, if you look at chapter 12, verse 4, uh, you know, that there's somehow no striving in the Christian life. Uh, you know, chapter 12, verse 4, he says there, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Clearly, he's saying, you're supposed to strive against sin. So that's not what this means when he says, um, let us be carried forward using the passive voice implied by God. What he means is, as we strive, we are to do so in total, as much as you can humanly do that, while still being uh, this side of heaven, we are to do so, that striving, in total dependence upon God for the strength that we need to make any spiritual progress. We have to realize as we strive, my striving is not going to do squat unless the Lord blesses it. And you got to be convinced of that while you're striving. Me too. Talking to myself. Right. Is that something you're doing, folks? Is that something you are doing? Think about some area of your life that you're struggling in to make progress spiritually, a sin that you're struggling to put off, an act of obedience, or a pattern of obedience that you're struggling to put on. And you're striving, but is your striving 
a dependent striving? Is it as dependent as it should be? Or can be? This side of heaven? The answer is probably yes for most of us to that question. See, this is the balance. This is the biblical balance between trusting God and working to grow in holiness. Sanctification does involve mortification, striving to put away sin. And it just, at the very same time, involves an understanding that only God is going, can get the job done and make my efforts profitable. That's the biblical balance. So you and I need to trust God to push forward, to not be to not rest on our laurels or 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 be happy with the degree of maturity that you may think you have or that others may think you have, you may have. But you you never can say legitimately I've arrived where I need to be. No. You haven't. Nor have I. None of us have. Now we shouldn't be discontent with that necessarily, or you know, shouldn't that shouldn't produce feelings of angst necessarily, but it should make us realize I, I need to keep pressing on in pursuit of the Lord and becoming more Christ's, more experientially Christ's. And we need to trust God again. In our striving by not, oh, excuse me, this isn't again. This is, this is the first phrase of verse one of chapter six. That, that, uh, that, uh, qualifying phrase it says, therefore, um, and that, that first part, this point I'm going to make right now has to do with that. We need to do that trusting in our striving, trusting God in our striving, um, by, among other things, not not leaving behind the elementary teachings about Christ. So let me explain that. Look at verse 6. I don't know what translation you have, but listen to me as you look at your translation. The verb here that's translated in the New American Standard, leaving, therefore leaving, and I, uh, leaving the elementary uh, teaching about the Christ, that verb can mean leave standing as well as leave behind. It can be understood either way in the Greek. And translating it, the concept, both those concepts in English can apply to that Greek term. Leave standing or leave behind. So most translators opt for the latter translation, leave behind or just leave but they, this is probably done by them, uh, this is probably rather due to a misapprehension of the point that the writer is trying to make. He's not, as I've already indicated, he's not telling his readers to disregard the elementary teachings about Christ that they had learned earlier on in their Christian experience. He's not saying disregard those fundamental teachings of the faith, 
teachings such as those that he mentions there at the end of verse 1 and verse 2, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, that can, by the way, that word can be translated baptisms, uh, and laying on of hands uh, and the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. He's not, uh, he's not telling his readers to disregard those elementary teachings uh, of the faith or fundamentals of the faith. He tells them that they don't need to lay, he's telling them not to lay that foundation again. Instead, what they need to do is they need to build upon that those foundational teachings. They need to move forward. This reminds me of my Is saying no, that's not right. That's that's not what you need to be doing. Because if you're not going forward, you're moving backward. So, what you need to do, says the writer, uh, in verse fourteen of chapter five. But but solid food is for the mature. And again, he's speaking, he's lying, and this is what you folks are supposed to be wanting. And aren't apparently wanting right at the moment. But but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He's saying you need to you need to build upon the foundation that has already been laid, uh, the theological foundation that you already possess. You need to build upon that by continually exposing yourself to spiritual solid food. Not keep going after the milk. You know, uh, my frequent criticism of the church, and I heard this from many, many, it's not me, many people have said this, you know, the the American church is a mile wide and half an inch deep. Um, And it's, it is, it's half an inch deep, if that in all too many places, collectively and individually, because the individual makes up the whole. So we need to be exposing ourselves to, and by the way, the Sunday school material that we've been going after, that's, that's solid food for those of you that are coming to Sunday school. That's an advertisement for those of you that aren't to start coming, by the way. Uh, but that's solid food, that kind of thinking and, and, and uh, uh, analysis and uh, discussion. And what this means is that we need to spend regular time, first of all, obviously, regular time, uh, frequent time in God's Word. Not simply reading it, um, you know, flying it, you know, 30,000 feet, so to speak, uh, but uh, pondering its meaning, digging in and, and considering what it's saying 
Um, and not just its meaning. Meaning is obviously is clearly very important, but not just the meaning of it, but how it applies to me in my specific situation. How does it apply, how does this how does this apply to my life specifically? And this requires that you and I dig into the scriptures, that we're not satisfied with uh, superficial readings or casual uh, Bible study. It means drawing conclusions um, after some thought about the meaning of something, finding parallels with other passages and, uh, and uh, analyzing this passage in light of this other passage that bears on the meaning of this passage. Um, it means uh, seeing uh, shadows and types of Christ in the Old Testament uh, or seeing in the New Testament, thinking of the shadowy um, uh, Old Testament things that pointed forward to the New Testament reality, going back, in other words, between both Testaments in our, as we think about things. Noting uh, the history of redemption and how it has progressed and the differences between what the saints experienced in Abraham's day uh, and in David's day and in our day. And thinking about those things. Seeing how a given passage fits into the flow of that history of redemption. Pondering themes like we've talked about in Sunday school of exile and exodus and other themes. It's work. It's great work, but it's work. And it's, in effect, what God, through the writer of the Hebrews, is telling you and me. Do the work. He promises it'll be profitable to you. You won't be wasting your time. It'll be a great blessing if you read it with faith and humility. But don't be satisfied with mamby-pamby Christianity. Now, if you're here today and you have never put your trust in the Jesus who is 100% God and 100% man and the only way to God, um, you've got much bigger problems than the ones that I'm talking about or have been talking about. You're under the wrath of God. His judgment is, you're an object of his divine judgment because you are unprotected uh, from that judgment and you're full of sin. I'm full of sin. We're all full of sin. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not picking on you if you're here and you're not a Christian. We're all full of sin. We all deserve hell. One sin can, will land a person in hell because it's infinitely offensive to God, just one sin, let alone countless sins that most of us have racked up. But you're, you're exposed to the wrath, the judicial wrath of God because he's a holy God and your rebellion against him, my rebellion against him, it, it, it's, uh, it's abominable to him. He hates it. And he must punish your sin. And guess what? Only two people qualify to receive that punishment. You or Jesus. That's it. Now Jesus, for all those that trust him, 
past, present, and future, down through history, the people that trust in Jesus alone as their Savior and Lord, Jesus paid for the full debt to divine justice that uh, that those people who trust in him owed. He did that 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross. But for all those people that don't flee to Jesus in faith, you will spend eternity paying horrifically paying and never pay it off. It's a debt you owe. We all owe it. And you will receive it. And only a fool can hear what I just said and say, no, I don't want Jesus. Don't be a fool. Flee to Christ in faith and only to him. And you will be forgiven and loved by God and heaven-bound, and that will never change once you, the Lord gets a hold of you. But you must flee to him with faith, saying, Jesus, save me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that this is true, what I just said.